Well, John 14. Remember a couple weeks ago, I had left off there in our exposition at John 14, 1 through 7, namely in verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in effort, to, in order to get through the exposition, I had so much more on my heart. Let me read that text in 14, 1 through 3 to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let's bow just in a word of prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we just are in need of your grace. I'm in need of your grace. We are a people in need of your grace and in need of a clear view of heaven, of what awaits us. Father, I pray that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see. I pray that you allow me to get out of the way that your glory of heaven might show itself, Father, that we might rejoice in our salvation, that we might fix our attention on the glories of heaven, that you might transform even our relationships now, and we commit this to you in Christ's name, amen. Jesus gave his scared, bewildered disciples hope in the midst of chaos. You remember in the upper room on that Thursday night, He foretold that Judas would go out and betray him. He also foretold that night that at the end of this night and before the night's over, Peter would deny him. And these disciples are scared. The other gospel says that he prophesied that they would all flee from him. And so in the midst of this frantic news, he gives these disciples hope in the midst of human chaos. Now you'll recognize as we just read there, he speaks about in my father's house. He's referring to heaven, the abode of God. He says in my father's house are many rooms. In other words, spacious rooms. King James says there are many mansions. And it's not as though we're separated from each other, but it's one large house, if you will, and many rooms is the thought. And Jesus told these disciples, and he would tell us, that I will come again. He's going to come again. So he's leaving, but you can see there he's going to come again. And he's going to come again at his rapture to rapture the church. He's going to come again at his second coming. And he's going to come for this purpose to take us to himself. That where I am, Jesus says, you may be also. In fact, just we noted there two weeks ago, so wonderful is Christ's love that not only does he take us to heaven, but he takes us to himself. So I'd bring you to go take you to heaven and I'm preparing that place, but I'm bringing you to myself. I mean, that alone is just staggering. But I said so little about heaven two weeks ago that I thought it might be appropriate if I could just come this morning and give you an application 
of that passage, an application of heaven. Maybe between 10 to 15 years ago, and maybe this is what jotted my mind to say that two weeks ago, 10 to 15 years ago, I was doing my doctorate work at a place called TED's, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, TED's for short. It's in Chicago, and so I had already finished with my Master of Divinity, and I went to TED's just to sharpen any uh, tools that the Lord had given me, and it was really just a wonderful time. It was a doctorate in the subject of preaching, and so uh, just wonderful. They have some wonderful scholars there. I met some wonderful people. It expanded my categories outside of me just being from the Master's Seminary, which was, of course, a joy, but it was a joy to, to be there. But in one of these classes that I took, I had the rare privilege to take one elect. I took a couple of elective classes, but one of them just changed my life. And it was a unique class, and it was a class, who would this be? On the greatest American theologian that has ever lived. Most people would say that. I suppose that's a bit subjective. But it was a class on the greatest American theologian that most scholars would say has ever lived. Who is that? Well, that is a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. Many would classify him and say that is the greatest theological mind that the Lord has ever given to this place in America, not so much the globe, but they would say at least here. But I took a class on Edwards, and so I had to read multiple books and multiple pages, and I read multiple books and pages from a Jonathan Edwards scholar who was on the staff there. His name was Douglas Sweeney. It was incredible. I, I would say it changed my life. I mean, when you hear the name Jonathan Edwards, what comes to your mind? Probably, likely, his famous sermon called, you can finish it, Sinners in the Hands of a what? Of an Angry God. It is a significant piece. Of course, to me, it is a sermon, but that goes down in the history of American literature as well. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He preached it on July 8th, 1741. And if you read the historical accounts of when he preached that sermon, people were falling in the aisles. People were weeping in the aisles. People were just undone in the service. What's fascinating is he had preached that sermon three months prior to his own church and nothing happened. But three months later, he was a guest, and he preached that sermon again, and it goes down as one of the greatest effective sermons in the history of preaching. But it, he preached it a long time ago, on July 8, 1741, but Edward said this, and I still have these thoughts in my mind of reading that, the God, quote, that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider as some loathsome loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. 
I mean, it is just intense. I've read the sermon multiple times, and every time I read it, have you, has this ever happened to you? I thought, I'm going to become a Christian if I'm not one right now. I mean, it is that powerful. It is that graphic. About halfway into a sermon, he ta- starts talking to the mothers, and about halfway, he starts talking to the high school students and the junior high students, and you're just reading it, and what they would say in church history, far from any kind of preaching delivery, some would say, if it's right historically, that he read his sermon, you know, just monotone, reading from a manuscript like this. But so powerful was the effect that we know it as sinners in the hands of an angry God. But I ask you this morning, did he ever preach anything else? Did he ever preach anything else other than that sermon? And the answer is yes. In fact, there's a number of volumes being produced on Edwards in the last 10 years by these scholars, one of whom I took the class from. And I would ask you this morning, have you ever read Edwards on heaven? It is life-changing. It is profound. He wrote a sermon, preached a sermon called Heaven, a World of Love. Heaven. What comes to your mind when you think of heaven? When Jesus said there, in my Father's house are many rooms, what what fills your mind on heaven? Because usually what fills your mind on heaven, at least in our 21st century, is a problem. John Eldridge, in his book, Journey of Desire, said this, that nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We have an image, he said, of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. One great hymn after another, forever and ever. And he said, and our hearts sink. That's the good news. And when we feel guilty that we are not more spiritual, he said, we lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. End of quotes. Heaven. Is that what it is? A never-ending sing-along as though there's just little imagination to it? Little adventure to it? In the adventures of, you remember that theological work called Huckleberry Finn, (laughs) Mark Twain portrays a similar view of heaven. Miss Watson looks down upon Huck's fun-loving spirit, and according to Huck, she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there is go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So Huck, in whatever way you would imagine him saying that, said, so I don't think much of it. And I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there. And she said, not by a considerable sight. And Huck said, I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. I mean, evidently, the pious Miss Watson said nothing or had nothing to say about heaven that appealed to Huck. And if we're honest, maybe you this morning, maybe nothing appeals to you about heaven. And so I ask you this morning, what's heaven going to be like? 
Is heaven going to be boring with harps playing 24-7? Frankly, Grace Church of the Valley, I think Star Wars and Lord of the Rings looms larger in many people's minds. What's fascinating about this subject is that even my heroes of the faith don't say very much about it. Guys like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've read much of what he has written. He has a 900-page theology. It's called The Great Doctrines of the Bible. And he devotes less than two pages to heaven and hell. I'm not criticizing Lloyd-Jones, but out of 900 pages, he's got two. And this could go on and on, but one more. Another one of my heroes is a man by the name of Louis Burkhoff. He is a classic reformed theologian. He has a book, Systematic Theology. He's got 38 pages given to creation, 15 pages to the intermediate state between death and the new heavens and the earth. And he's only got one page on heaven. So what, what do you think? I mean, it just seems like these, some guys are writing, and there's just no words left for discussing the new heavens and the new earth. Imagine that you're part of a NASA team, and you're preparing for a mission for five years to go to Mars. And after extensive training, the launch date finally arrives. And as the rocket lifts off, one of your fellow astronauts says to you, hey, what do you know about Mars? Imagine just saying, nothing. We never really talked about it. We're just going to find out about it when we get there. I mean, it would be unthinkable that there would be no training for your ultimate destination. It would be unthinkable that there's training for no ultimate destination for heaven. Beloved, I think we know better. I mean, Jesus spoke about it here in John 14, 1 through 3. He'll say more about it in his high priestly prayer. But the Bible tells us that heaven isn't for everyone. It's reserved for believers who've trusted in Christ. In fact, this might be a question for you this morning. Here's who it's for in Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone, it says, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name this morning in the Lamb's book of life, or is Star Wars bigger in your mind? I just watched this summer, is it okay to say that? The first Lord of the Rings. Like, what is this stuff? So I finally sat down and watched one of them with all the computer graphic simulation and all those things. Heaven. Let me say this so I'm not misunderstood. What is heaven? Well, God is there. He is the ultimate. Christ is there, that is captured in Revelation 4 and 5, 
All the elders are around the throne giving worship and praise to God and to the Lamb who is in the center saying, Worthy art thou to be praised and so forth. And so whatever heaven is, he is central. Christ is central. The Lamb is central. And if you want a fuller description on this, please go by Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. Okay? But we know that in that place, the presence of sin, it's hard to imagine it, is banished. There's no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no death. There's no tears. But the subject of heaven is broad. Broad. Like, where is heaven? There's earth. Then there's the atmosphere. Then there's the third heaven. And that's a question, where is heaven? In fact, Alcorn goes on to a complete, thorough explanation that he believes that the new heavens and the new earth is going to be recreated right here. Fascinating what he says. But where is it? What will, second question, heaven be like? What's it going to be like? And we're going to discuss a little of that today. What will you be like in heaven? But today, I just want to answer this question, okay? Practically. You ready? What will your relationships with others be like in heaven? Have you ever thought about it? What will your relationships with others be like in heaven? Now Jesus in this context is going to give to these bewildered disciples hope. Here's what I want to do with our time this morning. I want to give you a text of scripture... Okay, a little bit a la Jonathan Edwards. A statement, secondly, on the doctrine of heaven. And then thirdly, I want to give you an application of heaven. Okay, a statement of scripture. Then secondly, the doctrine of heaven. Then thirdly, an application of heaven. First, the text of scripture. Look over to 1 Corinthians, will you, just for a moment? Don't know if you've ever caught this, and I'll have to be brief here. But the text of Scripture, it's in that love chapter, as you well know it. And that great section there in 13.4, love is patient and kind and does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. All of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But the key phrase in our text of Scripture is this. Verse 8. Love never, what? Ends. Edwards is getting at something, and here Paul is getting at something. What Paul is saying is that love, maybe the other translation says, never fails. Or just here in the ESV, it never ends. Look what he says in verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. For we just know in part, and we just prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes the partial will pass away. In other words, he's talking about the permanence of love. And he's talking about the permanence of love in light of the spiritual gifts in 12 through 14 on the nature of gifts and on the nature of our relationship with each other. And what ought to permeate us is not this gift is more profound, tongues is such this. What ought to be emphasized is our love for one another because 
as you see, prophecies are going to pass, tongues are going to cease, knowledge is going to pass, and we actually just know in part, just, just we prophesy in part. Then he says, when the perfect comes. Now you might ask, what is the perfect there? And uh, uh, there'd be much for me to say. Some people believe that the perfect is this. It's the scripture. That when the canon is closed, that's the perfect comes. I don't really think that's right. I mean, some good scholars believe that, but I could hardly think when he's writing to the Corinthian church early in the 50s, one of the earliest New Testament books written, that when they read this letter, they thought the perfect came was the completion of the scripture. I mean, there's some truth there, but again, I'm picking on verse 10, but when the perfect comes, I think it's, it's obvious. The perfect is the eternal state. The perfect is heaven. So now we prophesy in part. Now we see in a mirror dimly. But when the perfect comes, then everything else will pass away. It's the eternal state. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is the most profound truth ever penned on love, right? It's better than any book. It's better than any poem. It's better than any song. And it describes how members in the body of Christ should operate in terms of action and what you should do with your gift and the issue would be love. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is God's own definition of love. But according to Paul here, it's likened to a child in verse 11 in the stage of infancy, infancy is what he says. Now that is said in contrast to what the church will become in the heavenly state and the church will one day be made mature and one day made perfect according to the measure of Jesus Christ. So the perfect is the eternal state, it's heaven. In fact, look what Paul said in verse 12, you've seen this. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Hey, we're just seeing in a mirror dimly. But then what? Face to face, I wouldn't understand how that would be the scripture. We see in a mirror dimly in this life, but one day we're going to see our Savior face to face. He says, now I just, I, I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It's got to be the eternal state. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest, he says, of these is what? Is love. Why? Love is eternal, if you will. And in the glories of heaven, every single expression of love will be poured out perfectly in every relationship. I'll say it again. Every expression of love towards one another will be poured out perfectly in every relationship. So the greatest of these, the most eternal of these, what carries on into heaven is not gifts, is not ministries, is not prophecies, it's love. That's the text of scripture. Secondly, the doctrine of heaven. The doctrine of heaven. Heaven, Edward said, is a world of love. And in that sermon, he gives insights into what heaven will be like in our relationship to God and certainly in our relationship to one another. He gives a number of insights, but I've just kind of classified maybe six of those, okay? 
using his words and some of his quotes, but much of and many of my words. Six insights. The first three expressions are sinful characteristics of earthly relationships that will be removed in heaven. Whatever characterizes now your earthly relationships, the sinful characteristics of it, it's going to be removed in heaven, okay? Then the second set, number four, five, and six of these three expressions are positive in nature, and they express what our relationships will be characterized by in heaven. So what's removed, first three, the second set is what's going to be positive and expressed and characterized by in heaven. So let's, let's walk through these, okay? Number one, and we'll pick them up as we go. First, in heaven, let me say this. You will never be ignored in heaven. You will never be ignored in heaven. In other words, because God loves perfectly, in heaven, you, I, will be transformed to love one another with a perfect love even as we have been loved by God himself. You will never be ignored in heaven. Have you ever been hurt by someone? Have you ever been ignored by someone, even in the body of Christ, by your family? Have you ever been shut out by another? Have you ever received from someone the cold shoulder, we say? Possibly this is the case today, but I want you to know that in the glories of heaven where it is the perfect state where love abounds, we will never be ignored. We will never in any sense be grieved by another. You say, why? Because we will be so full of God's love for us that our love for one another will never be diminished, ever. Edwards put it this way. He said, in heaven, This desire or this fondness for, he said, being loved will never fail of being satisfied. He said no one in that blessed world will ever be grieved that they have been slighted by those that they love or that their love is not fully returned. In other words, your love to God and your love to others will always be returned to you in like manner. In fact, it's almost too good to be true. I mean, you just think of your relationships that you have. You have many good ones, praise the Lord. I'm not trying to be negative on this. But in heaven, when we're all perfect, and it's a world of love, and God's there, and Christ's there, and we're there together, you will never be ignored. Secondly, you will never be jealous in heaven. You will never be jealous in heaven. In other words, heavenly love shall never be dampened by jealousy. In fact, one of the glories in heaven is perfect love, whereby there remains no jealousy within the soul of the redeemed. Humanly speaking, in our unredeemed flesh, this is inconceivable. But I just want you to know, in heaven, there is perfect trust between one another. In heaven, there remains no suspicion, no rivalry, no selfishness to stain, we might say, your family, 
and your friendships and make you withdraw. There's none of that. You will never be jealous over one's friendship. You will never be jealous over gifts. You will never be jealous over one's possessions. You will never be jealous over one's looks. You will never be jealous over one's personality. Heaven, beloved, will be free from all of this because we will behold God's love for us and this love will cause our love for one another to be free from the sin of jealousy. Edwards put it like this. He said, they shall be perfectly satisfied of the sincerity and strength of each other's love. As much as if there were a window in all their breasts that they would see each other's hearts. Everyone will be perfectly sincere. All their expressions of love shall come from the bottom of their hearts. The saints shall know that God loves them and they shall not doubt of the greatness of his love and they shall have no doubt of the love of all of their fellow heavenly inhabitants. So not only will you not be ignored, but there will be no jealousy in heaven. Thirdly, you will never, are you ready for this one? You will never know conflict in heaven, ever. You will never know conflict in heaven. There is conflict today within our world, within the best of families, even probably within the best of relationships. Try as we may, we battle with conflict, do we not, at work. We battle with conflict at school. We battle with conflict at times in the church. And we battle at conflict even within family with those whom we love the most. And beloved, oh, how much each of us are soiled with our own sinfulness. Dampened, if you will, by our own perfections that actually quenches every relationship. In fact, we can become imprisoned to bitterness. We can, in our spirit, lack forgiveness. We, at times, as Paul said in Galatians, can bite and devour one another rather than love one another. But in heaven, I want you to know there's not going to be any conflict. Last weekend, as Dom preached, I was at a lake with my daughter, Christine, and my son-in-law, Corey, who will be here for missions in a few weeks, and and we would walk on Lake Powell. And sometimes Shiloh, as everybody was out on the boats or doing some kind of tubing, she would say, she would call to me and say, let's go look for butterflies. She calls me the big poppy. I think I told you that. And um, because my dad was Papa Ardo, so she calls me the big poppy. Four years old, you'll see her as cute as ever. Big poppy, let's go look for butterflies. So I would just grab her hand and we would just walk on the shoreline and whatever the season was, there was these beautiful butterflies right there on the shore. They actually weren't flying at that point. They were just on the wet sand. And so we would just take a little bucket. Let's get that one, Poppy. Okay. So I'd reach down and we'd get these butterflies and I thought they were all dead. But as we begin to pick them up, uh, some of them were in fact dead, but as we begin to pick some of them up, I saw their little feelers moving and I saw their wings begin to, to go. 
And I thought, Shiloh, there's, there's hope for these butterflies. And what we did is we got them out of the wet sand on the shore there, and we put them in a bucket that was dry with dry sand. And sometimes I would take one of those butterflies, they were beautiful, and put them in my hand, and I would, I would blow into, into this butterfly to, to, to dry, if you will, like a human blow dryer, the wings of these butterflies. And then very carefully, I would just touch their little wings to get all the sand off their wings. These butterflies couldn't fly. Right? They were weighed down, if you will. Their wings were wet. And not only were they wet, but they had sand on them. Well, after a little bit, a few of those, I was able to dry. I was able to cup them in my hand. And I was able to go like this. One of them fell to the ground again. Then I, like Darth Vader, you know, and I'd blow into it. And then a number of them just flew off. It was so encouraging. You know, one day, when you have all the sin removed from your heart, all the unredeemed flesh redeemed, and when you stand in the glory of heaven, and you have all that water taken, sin off your wings, and all that sand taken off, one day you're going to fly. You're going to fly because in heaven there will be no sin. In heaven there will be no conflict. And one day our chains of imperfection will be broken and we will worship God and we will love one another in unbroken fellowship for all eternity. Listen, beloved, one day the glories of heaven is you will fly unhindered. You will fly free. You will fly relationally both with God and with one another with no conflict. Edwards put it this way. He said in heaven... There is no unfaithfulness, zero. No separation wall, no misunderstanding, no strangeness, but perfect intimacy in all. There is no division, no sickness, no grief, no persecution, no sorrow. There will not be, I even like how he said this, no busybody, to create jealousy or mar the perfect and the holy and blessed peace that reigns in heaven. Can you imagine just being without a place with gossip? Out of place with no busybody? Can you imagine that place where there's no one ignored, there's no jealousy, there's no conflict? Listen, in our glorious future in heaven... Every obstacle that hinders our relationship to God and to one another will ever be removed. And here's why. Every expression of heaven will not only be purified from all defilement of sin, but every single expression of love toward God and others will be marked by wisdom so as to never make us offensive to another person. Listen, in our finite beings, our best intentions are often misunderstood. Our timing is wrong. Our tone sometimes is wrong. Our temper is sometimes too often wrong. But beloved, in heaven, we will possess perfect wisdom and so speak and so act with such clarity that all our expressions of love to God and others will be wise and discerning. Won't that be a great day? 
all of our conversations will promote and encourage one another to perfect understanding and wisdom. And in that place, there will be no conflict. Listen, that ought to be a place that we look forward to, amen? Can you imagine that? Fourth, okay? And I'm going to move into these positive elements. The fourth insight this is that every relationship, because that's our theme, every relationship will be marked by perfect peace. It will be marked by perfect peace. In other words, there will be nothing external to keep us at a distance or hinder the most perfect enjoyment of each other's love. In other words, very similar to no conflict, but positively, no relationship will be hindered by sin. No relationship will lack information. No relationship will lack knowledge or any such thing. There are, beloved, are you ready? No enemies in heaven. There is no hostility in heaven. But it is the greatest possible expression of love in every single relationship. Heaven with God's love and God's person and Christ at the center will be the ultimate expression and enjoyment of God and of each other's love. I could put it another way for you. In heaven, there will be no wars. There will be no gangs. There will be no terrorism. There will be no bombs. There will be no disease. There will be no jails. There will be no law courts. And ready for this one? There will be no Senate hearings. Okay? At all. There will be nobody accosted, you know, by someone in an elevator. Because the king's ruling. And the king knows every heart. But in that perfect eternal state, there's no jails, there's no law courts, there's no lawyers, there's no judges, there's no crimes, there's no violence, there's no prisons. And I could even say it this way, there's no doctors, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more tears. And I did tell Tommy this morning that even in heaven there's no more dentist. Okay? You say, why? Because God will be over all. And our relationship to him and to one another will constitute the place wherein perfect peace dwells because we are of God's household and we are of God's family. Edward said in heaven, a world of love, he said, oh, what tranquility will be there in such a world as this? What a calm is this after having passed through the storms and the tempest of this world in which pride and selfishness and envy and, and he said malice and contempt and contention and vice are the waves of restless ocean always rolling in fury. Imagine being in heaven. Listen, beloved, in heaven, Murphy's law will be reversed. Whatever can go wrong will never go wrong. And every relationship is going to be marked by perfect peace. That means in heaven, every form of bitterness will be banished. Hatred will be snuffed out. Malice will be extinguished. Perfect love will prevail in every single relationship. Quarreling between a husband and wife will be buried into the deepest sea because of our nearness to God and his nearness to us. Heaven will know no anger. 
Heaven will know no arguing. Heaven will know no fighting. It will know no manipulative comments or any kind of silent treatment. Heaven will be, there it is, forth a place of perfect peace. Far beyond just it being a never-ending sing-along. Can you imagine this place? And if you want to go, go read Alcorn. He talks about heaven being an absolute stunning, beautiful adventure with God being at the center, Christ being at the center, but we'll be in glorified bodies. He builds it as an adventure that awaits us that's far beyond any kind of computer graphic thing that a movie can give us. Listen, I think we're going to be so blown away by heaven. And I think whatever heaven's going to be, you ought to be preparing for it now. Number five, every relationship, positively, right, will be marked by perfect prosperity. Every relationship will be marked by perfect prosperity. As fallen creatures, certainly our relationships to one another bears the infirmities as well as shares in the loss sometimes of one another's hardship. We understand that. But you understand, beloved, in heaven there will be no trial to endure, no sorrow to carry, no tears to wipe away, but only the sweet fellowship of God's eternal love and each other's eternal prosperity to rejoice in. In other words, because we are God's possession, bought with a price, heirs of the covenant of promise, all that God is, is ours, and all that we are, we share with one another in perfect bliss. We share with one another in perfect prosperity. I mean, the truth is, sometimes lack of prosperity hinders us. Not always. We should be content with nothing. But when you don't have enough to feed your children, or you don't have enough to work yourself out of a trial, or you get to the end of the month and there's more month than there is income, then you've got to understand that sometimes that issue of prosperity affects your family. Do you remember, beloved, certainly in Acts 2 that the church shared all the resources that whoever had need, but beloved, can you imagine what it will be like in heaven? Nothing you own will be selfishly possessed. We will be, beloved, so full of God's love that his love will permeate all of our possessions for one another's blessing in perfect prosperity. You will never have financial pressure in heaven, ever, okay? You will owe no money. You will pay no bills. You will possess no debt, and all of our needs will be perfectly met, and we shall never go without. And I think as I studied that these last two weeks, I was really glad because I still have four other girls to marry off, right? I wrote in my notes here that that guy, Dave Ramsey, you know, guru guy, he won't even exist. I mean, maybe he's a believer, but his app and his materials won't exist. There'll be no mortgage brokers, though we've got great mortgage brokers in our church. There'll be no real estate agents in heaven, though we have great agents in our church. Because listen, there's going to be perfect prosperity there. He's got a place reserved for you. Are you kidding? Are you looking forward to this? <laughs> I hope so. We will be perfectly satisfied with God and his provision for us, even as I preach it. It is beyond my finite understanding. But sixth and finally, every relationship will be marked by perfect love. Every relationship will be marked by perfect love. I think one said it this way. 
Heaven will be perfect love. Think about it this way. It will be perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect harmony, perfect trust, perfect fellowship, perfect relationships in every dimension of existence. Beloved, can you imagine a family like that? Can you imagine a place where there are absolutely perfect relationships? Can you imagine that place where everyone is perfect? There is never any sadness. There's never any disappointment. There's never any discouragement. There's never any depression. Nobody ever does anything wrong. Nobody nobody ever says anything wrong. Nobody ever thinks anything wrong. Can you imagine all the people in your house acting exactly like Christ would act at every single point in their existence? I mean, just can you imagine that in your family? And what's even more remarkable is you'll act the same way, perfect. You'll have perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect contentment, perfect harmony, perfect bliss, perfect relationships. There it is, perfect love. So here... Thirdly, the applications of the doctrine of heaven. The applications of the doctrine of heaven. Practically, if heaven be so glorious and loving relationship both to God and others, then maybe just let me give you two takeaways today, okay? Two takeaways. Maybe there could be many more, okay? But number one, I would say to you, and I would say like this, are you kidding me? And I'm telling that to myself. You need to seek after heaven. You need to seek after heaven. Beloved, our great inheritance is not here. It's there. You need to give your hearts to it. You need to focus your attention upon it. You need to seek after it. And if you're single, you ought to find someone who thinks that way as well. Okay? Heaven is indeed a world of perfect love and peace with God and others. Let me reason with you just for a moment this morning. Does not the absence of pride, does not the absence of jealousy, does not the absence of strife, injustice, falsehood, hypocrisy, deceit, cause your heart to seek the treasure in heaven above all else? That ought to be our hearts. You've you've heard, maybe I should have put this on the screen. You heard Edwards wrote those things called resolutions, right? He, He wrote these resolutions and he wrote the resolutions. You know, I told you he preached that sermon, when was it, 1741. But he wrote the resolutions when he, in 1722. And if you ever read them, they're, they're just, they're more profound. And, and the reason I'm saying that is he wrote them when he was 19. 19. So they're phenomenal. Can I just give you one of them? Here's number 22. Resolved, because here's the resolutions. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all my power and might and vigor, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. That's incredible. Resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as possibly I can. How about you? 
How about my own heart? It's a good question. You don't want to settle for cheap substitutes, right? In light of the greatest reality that will be offered us in the future. I think I've shared this once with you before. Do you remember? Maybe I was just thinking of that word cheap substitute. Remember that time I, I was, uh, I, I know I've shared this once, but maybe it suffice one more time. I was heading into a, uh, an automotive store when I was a teenager, 19, maybe 20, 21. And it was Christmas time, and as I began to head into this automotive store, I had to get something for one of my uh, junky cars that will certainly burn up at the end of time, right? And as I was going into the store, a guy called to me from the car, and I'm just walking, and uh, he, he, he was in a car, okay? Looked like uh, just a car that you had to be careful of. He goes, come here. And, you know, you know, that's when you're dumb enough to go, okay, I'll come over, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I come over to him, and, I mean, he could have just pulled out a shotgun, you know, and I'm, I'm done. He, he, he's got a newspaper folded in his lap. He goes, my man, I got something inside the newspaper for you. And I'm like, yeah. And he opens the newspaper, and there's a bunch of... Uh, Jewelry. I go, wow. He goes, do you like one of these? And it's Christmas time. I had not bought anything for my girlfriend, who was Patty at that time. And I said, yeah. I said, that one catches my eye right there. And it was a big, girls, how much would this be, ladies? Half an inch gold necklace. I mean, that just, I said, whoa. He goes, oh. You have good choice. I said, I know, I know. And uh, he said, for you, my man, it's 180 bucks. I go, oh, man, I'm a college basketball player on Christmas. I, I could barely get my car to run. You know what I mean? And he goes, but she would like that, wouldn't she? I said, oh, she would. She would like that. And uh, so the story goes on that I said, hey, listen, I, I don't have that. How much is that? $180. I said, oh, I don't have even close. He said, but for you, my man, it's 90 bucks. I said, oh, listen. I said, I don't even have 90 bucks. So you remember the account? I reached into my pocket and I had 30. I go, man, all I got is 30. And he goes, sold to you for 30 bucks, my man. I go, what a deal. So I took this piece of jewelry. I put it in my pocket. I had to leave the cars, you know, the automotive store. And I remember I thought, ah, you know, I don't want to give this to Patty. What if this thing's a cheap substitute? So I went into the Northridge Mall. You know that place? I went into Zales. I still remember. I can still remember walking into Zales and they got those perfect lights coming down on those glass counters. And I walked up and as I began to walk up to the counter, I said to the lady, she said, can I help you? And I was about right where the pulpit is. And I came up to the counter. I'd like to know how much. And as soon as I pulled that out of my pocket, she goes, that one's fake along with the other five that have come in today. I go, What? What? She goes, oh, yeah. She goes, how much did you pay for that? I said, my man sold it to me for $30. Like, I'm telling you, that thing would be thousands of dollars in real life. So she put it under the light, gave me that little magnifying glass, and I go, what will happen if I give this to my girlfriend? She, she said, sir, don't give that to your girlfriend. 
that will turn green on her neck in two weeks. And so I just thought, ah, I, I got robbed. It was, it was horrible, but I was smart, wasn't I? I went in before I... Patty, are you even aware of that story? She never got the necklace, so I did what any good brother would do. I gave it to my sister for Christmas. <laughs> and that's what I did. I wrapped it up, and I gave it to my sister for, for Christmas. But, but as I begin to think back on the cheap substitute, do you realize, as dumb as that story is, I just hope you, I hope my own heart, I hope you're not settling for something that's just so cheap that's just going to wear out, it's going to turn green. We spend our life on stuff like that. Let me just ask you here, what are you doing today to lay up eternal investment for tomorrow? You single people, what do you do? You single people who, who might have more money than most people in some cases. You dink families, double income, no kids. Dinks, got a lot of them. Making a lot of money if they're both working. What, do you, what are you doing to lay up treasure in heaven? You families, what, what are you doing? You junior hires and high schoolers, what are you doing now to make a difference for eternity? Those are questions I'm asking. How are you, myself, how are you using your gifts? How are you using your finances? How are you using your resources for God's kingdom to be extended as Dom preached on last week? Are you, number one, seeking after heaven and then I got a second one, and I just didn't know how to word it. We're all done. Does it come up on the screen? Kiss your flawed understanding of a perfect relationship in this world, what? Goodbye. You say, Scott, that's kind of negative. <laughs> no, I actually mean it kind of positive. If you think you're in heaven here, you're wrong. And if you think your relationships now are going to be perfect, you're wrong. I'm actually trying to encourage you. Because the people that you love the most, that you're closest to, could be the very ones that might hurt you the most. I mean, I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. I'm just being real with you here. So I'm not being discouraged, but I'm, I am saying there is a place called heaven that will be perfect. But if you want perfect relationship here... You're not going to get it, and you need a mind adjustment this morning. I'm not trying to tell you to be critical. I'm not trying to tell you to be negative. But if you want heaven on earth in an imperfect world, in an imperfect body, with imperfect people, you're not going to find it. And I say that to encourage you. I, ho I hope it ought to encourage you that there is a place. It's called heaven. There is a world filled with love. Most relationships, you understand this, I don't have to tell you this, have some strain and be careful, beloved, of tying your affections only to this world. It will disappoint you every time. And I promise you, heaven is going to astound me and you more than you have any proximity of. I just think Paul said, we see in a mirror, what, dimly. Then one day, face to face. So listen, you got to kiss it goodbye and maybe even now you need to just spend a moment thinking what that looks like and maybe your heart's become bitter and maybe you've become lacking forgiveness and maybe someone hasn't been kind to you and maybe someone has ignored you and maybe someone has brought tension in your life. Listen, this I mean I was just reading this week about that Iowa State girl 
who just won the Big Ten Championship for women's golf, and she's on a golf course, and a homeless man stepped in between one of the holes and abducted her and killed her. I mean, there's just stuff wrong with this world. We got people who lie, evidently, this week. Somebody's lying. Somebody's lying, right? And, and I'll, but one day, when we're perfect, it will be perfect. So listen, we've got to make sure that we don't seek to get heaven on earth and you become bitter and harsh and unforgiving and critical and a gossip and jealous and negative. You can become very negative because nothing ever went your way. But if I had that person, if I owned what they owned, if I had what they had, if I looked how they looked, if I didn't have this trial, if I didn't grow up in this family, if I wasn't, I I got this disease, Scott. I mean, there's something wrong with everything. I just talked to my good friend from Chicago yesterday. Good friend. He's got bone marrow cancer. Just but joyful. Listen, we, 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 we're prizing something way beyond this, aren't we? Listen, if heaven, you will not be ignored. If there's no jealousy, if there's no conflict, but rather in every relationship is perfect peace, perfect prosperity, perfect love, then that ought to be the place that we look forward to, right? In fact, would you look back at verse 10 if you're there in Corinthians, excuse me, Look at 13, 13. So faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is what? It's love. Why is it the greatest of these? Because it's eternal. And because people are eternal. Faith will will not be faith. It will become sight. Hope won't be future-oriented. Hope will be realized. But love, the greatest of these is love. So I just want to exhort you. You better get working with one another now and don't let any wedge of dissension ever get in your heart with anybody in your family, anybody in this church and anybody even in this community. The greatest of these is love. Remember, go back to 1 Corinthians. I'll just read it. If I speak in the tongues of men, verse one, and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but... Have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And now verse 8, love never, what, ends. Do you, do you just, have you ever caught Chapter 14, verse 1, the first two words. Do you get it a little bit more? Look at 14. It's broken by a chapter and a verse, but it's a letter. He tells him to pursue what? Love. Pursue love. No wonder. Because it's eternal. And so I pray that that would be your heart today to encourage you on all these matters. Amen.